this is the time of year when we're getting all of our reports for usage for like Spotify sends you your songs oh, of yeah. the year and all the of rap. your usage. I do Duolingo, you know, the mm. language app, yep. learning a couple of languages. What are you learning? Well, uh, I'm learning German and I'm learning French. Sacre bleu. Yeah, that's that's one of those two languages probably. What's interesting about the way <laughs> Duolingo works and so much other stuff is that it's gamified, right? So you get experience points for yeah. doing different things. And then there's like a leaderboard where you compete against other learners. And, yeah. you know, once you get to the top, then, you know, you go up to the from the Silver League to the Gold League. And then you get into gyms and then like there's what obsidian. Are you on? What are you then, in? Oh, I'm in Diamond League. That's the top of the top Whoa. right now. But so that's the funny thing is that it makes you compete until try and get points. The point of the app is supposed to be so that I can learn a language. Yeah. But I catch myself where the point of it is to do the easy listening exercises so I can get points so that Whoa. I can beat that lady in Albania who's trying to learn <laughs> French better than me. I see. Well, if I, it's great that you were Diamond League at Duolingo because another thing that's happening end of year tech related with me is that I just got the Sharper Image catalog. <laughs> Journals, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. I've been reading that thing since I was a little kid. I mean, and you know, it's the Sharper Image catalog. Do you remember when you're a kid too? It is pre-internet. So it's like when you open that catalog and all the technology stuff, that was within those pages was truly to like a nine-year-old cutting edge. Yeah. Right. I mean, that yeah. was like the future is freaking now. This thing massages your feet without you even having to ask what this blanket is heavy, heavier than a normal blanket. <laughs> yeah. And then also like a full-size jukebox. <laughs> yeah. One thing that back in the day you actually would find in a sharper image catalog is some kind of robot, mm, right? Mm -hmm, it it yeah. wouldn't be like like robots today, but you know there would be like kind of an early basic version of a robot that was programmed to like say stuff or like pick up a glass of water, and you're like, oh my god, mm -hmm. they're here. They were always finally here. They were always finally here. It's like this thing is six D cells, and yes. it, it heats up a little bit, its eyes flash, and then it breaks forever. But today, Brandon, we're going to be talking about. A newer kind of robot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Potentially a killer robot. Or if it's not a robot exactly, what is it? Which we'll get into. Hmm. You may have heard that San Francisco had a bit of a news flurry recently with the announcement that the Board of Supervisors had approved killer robots. Oh. Giving them to the police, and they were going to wreak havoc, depending on who you ask. Or, you know, it was just another sign that San Francisco was going down the toilet if you were listening to some of the writer wing media. Some of it was kind of the same message over and over again, but it did stir up a really interesting conversation about autonomous machines and how mm -hmm. they're used against the public. Our guest today is Will Jarrett. He is a data reporter for Mission Local, which is the rarest of things. It's actual local journalism. It's a nonprofit in San Francisco. And here he is. Will, hello. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. So, yeah, Will, welcome. Tell us a little bit about the type of reporting you're interested in. 
What what's your deal, Will? <laughs> Good question. Um, what is my deal? I guess so. I'm a data reporter for Mission Local, and basically that means I do all sorts of stories that involve data sets and visualizations, stuff like that. So in the past, I've done visualizations of the various corrupt entities in San Francisco, stuff like campaign finance, crime data. I also do kind of general beat reporting as well, because we're such a small place. We've got like four staff reporters, so everyone does a little bit of everything. And that's kind of how I got onto this story, which is not super datary, but our police reporter was at the time on holiday. <laughs> so um, yeah, I took this story that ended up just blowing up and going going kind of crazy. Yeah, it has a very neat arc, which Stephen and I appreciate It's like, oh, well, it sort of wrapped itself up, or at least the, the narrative for now has wrapped itself up. And you really see that, like when you look up stories, the last one is just from a few days ago, and then there's nothing else. It's every, everybody's now like, well, that was settled. Let's <laughs> move on to the next thing. Will, tell us what is the situation? Where are we at with the robot story? Give us the background on it. Okay, I'll try to give the kind of spark notes. So basically, it was, there's this new law called AB 481, which is a statewide law. And it says that all local police jurisdictions need to list an inventory of all of their, it's called military style equipment. So that includes things like machine guns, you know, big armored vehicles and robots. And it also needs to list exactly how all of those things can be used. It's called like a like use of force policy. So San Francisco has been working on this for a couple of months now. And as of around mid-November, one of the supervisors noted that there was no information at all on how the robots could be used. So he put in a phrase that I think at the time he thought was fairly innocuous. It was essentially, robots shall not be used for use of force. And, you know, robots have never been used as a use of force in San Francisco before. So I think he thought it was just, you know, a small little, little caveat that wouldn't be that controversial. The next week, the San Francisco police struck that out and had written in new guidelines that said along the lines of we can use these robots for use of force when there's an imminent threat to life and where it outweighs other options and that's the point at which we wrote the first story was when this there was now this language that was explicitly saying the SFPD will be allowed to use robots in extreme circumstances to kill people and then it just went crazy <laughs> people were reporting on this all over the place and then the supervisors at their meeting the following week, they approved the policy in an 8-3 vote. But at this time, you know, all the various civil rights groups and so on were starting to get involved. They were rallying, blah, blah, blah. Next week, the supervisors took a very rare step, which is on the second hearing of the policy, they changed their minds. And they have now approved the San Francisco's use of force policy with everything except for the robot section, which has been sent back to committee and they're going to work on it. So as it stands right now, the SFPD cannot blow people up with police robots. But are robots in general still in fair play? Yep. Yep. So you just these, can't strap a are... machine gun or a bomb to them or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So these were bomb defusal robots mainly that we're talking about. And so they can still be used to defuse bombs mm -hmm. and, and do, do all of their normal stuff. They just can't be used with lethal force. And to distinguish the difference, I mean, I think one of the things that made the story spin out so much was this 
kind of blanket statement of calling them robots, which mm. evokes the idea of autonomy. Like there's an algorithm that's powering this thing as some kind of AI, and it's going to make a decision divorced from a human operator. But that's not what they're talking about. These are little tank tread robots, kind of look like Johnny Five, yeah. not quite as cute. <laughs> no. um, but they do have a pilot. You know, they have an operator. That's precisely correct. Like many of these robots, there's a you know, there's a handful of robotics companies that are creating these robots. Boston Dynamics, I think Ghost Robotics, etc. But Notably, it's not like these companies are churning out these robots with machine guns or bombs on them. What happens is, is that police departments or military militaries get their hands on these robots and then they kind of trick them out to become lethal. Right. Some people may remember the story from Dallas back in 2016, I think, where there was a shooter. He had killed a bunch of police officers already he was all holed up in a parking garage and then they sent a bomb robot into the parking garage with a bomb on it detonated the bomb you know took out the shooter minor damage to the robot so correct me if i'm wrong will that that, that's the type of proposed use that san francisco pd was requesting yeah they initially basically said we don't have any plans to do this we want to keep the option open And so they didn't have anything in the policy saying that they were going to use guns or bombs or whatever it is. But they later clarified, yeah, we're not going to equip these things with guns. If we are going to use them for lethal force, we're going to use them with bombs, which I think was it was intended as like a PR, like damage mitigation thing, which really (laughs) didn't work. (laughs) Yeah, they they misunderstood how kind of killer robots with bombs. There's nuance (laughs) to a robot with like the glowing red eyes and in like a rifle versus a remote control bomb delivery. It's just another version of a gun. I mean, you know, if there's someone, if it's a sniper shooting somebody across the way, that's kind of just a different aspect. Somebody's driving a weapon to dispatch somebody. Yeah. In your reporting, you were clearly following all of the inner machinations of the Board of Supervisors during this sort of tumultuous period. Tell me a little bit about what that was like on the inside. Yeah. So there's 11 supervisors. And this this policy, as it was first being kind of created, so the police department put together something, and then it went to this group called the, the Rules Committee, which is made of three of the supervisors. And they were the guys who were responsible for, you know, like tweaking the police policy and going, hey, I think we should change this, listening to public opinion, sending it back. And that happened for about six weeks. And during that time, it was very low key. Like at, during the public comments, you would hear maybe like five people come up, some of whom were you know, activists who were pushing for it to go one way, some who was who were saying, you know, the police need these tools for this. But there was very little attention on it at that point. It was when it came out of the Rules Committee, and it was voted on unanimously by those three. So they all approved it with the language saying, you know, robots should be able to kill in limited circumstances. Those three pushed it to the full Board of Supervisors, which is where all 11 of them would have to vote on it. And up until then, yeah, there hadn't been much controversy when it came out of the rules committee and went to the supervisors, that's when all of the news kind of storm started. But still, when it got there to the first hearing, 
eight out of the 11 still voted for it. So that's a pretty strong margin they've got there. The people who voted against it, they were ve- they were of very different opinion to the rest of the board. They were saying, you know, I can't believe this has even come before us. Why are we talking about killer robots when we've got all these other things to be talking about in the city? They were saying that it was a civil rights problem, that it's giving right. the police more power. And that week is where we see a whole lot of the, the reaction from the public and from the press. Yeah, so talk about that. What was yeah. the public reaction? Where where did the fears yeah. come from in that? I think, you know, when you've got a headline that involves killer robots, people immediately go Robocop, they go like Terminator. One of the big things that was happening I saw on social media was people assuming that they were autonomous and they were saying, you know, oh, if, you know, these AIs are going to be even worse than the cops and stuff like that. And it's like, that was not ever part of what they were asking for. The robots that SFPD has, they are all remote controlled. And we we did mention that in the article. I don't have regrets in calling them robots. That's what the policy calls them. That's what the people who sell them call them. That's like opponents and supporters of this policy all called them robots. But I definitely think it does conjure an image in people's minds. Yeah. But what were this, the more formal organizations that were coming out against the policy? And what were they saying? Yeah. So there was the ACLU of Northern California was a big one. There was the the American Friends Service Committee were another big one. And they'd been following it like from the very beginning. They were some of the guys who were turning up in the public comment while it was still like a relative unknown. And then various kind of civil rights, legal kind of civil rights groups in the Bay Area. The so um, Electronic Frontier Foundation w- yeah. w- w- threw their hat in the ring there. And so mm-hmm. what what were their arguments around the civil rights issues if yeah. the robot itself was still controlled by human beings? There were a couple of different reasons why they saw this as a really bad, scary thing. One is the idea that if you've got... A, ro- a robot, then you're kind of distanced from the person that you're interacting with. It becomes easier to pull that trigger. And there's also the idea that some groups are saying cops should only be killing if there are lives at stake. And if you've got a robot there that's doing the killing, where's the life at stake? And you know, the, they they would answer, you know, what if it's a, what if it's a active a, shooter, an active like shooter, picking, yeah, picking like, people off, yeah, of course, yeah. So there could be times when that's when that argument doesn't fly, but then. There was also the other kind of second tranche of arguments was that were all based around the idea of the precedent that this would set and the idea of having in law that the police can explicitly kill people with robots would lead to some dark places in the future and that in other jurisdictions, they might be emboldened mm-hmm. by by this kind of policy that the robot manufacturers might say, oh, so these guys are all approving you know, killer robots, maybe we should get in on that and start selling this stuff. And, and, you know, it was seen as kind of a fork in the road for where this could end. Particularly that there's a machine doing it. I mean, at the end of the day, a sniper with a rifle and a robot with a bomb are kind of flavors of the same thing. So Mm. were people distinguishing that or was it just that there was this kind of reflexive fear of technology that was kicking in? I think there were some differences that were talked about. For instance, like with a with a robot, what if it malfunctions, right? You know, it's a hell of a lot more complicated than a than a sniper rifle is technologically. What if what if you lose control and then you've got a bomb sitting around that you can't what what if it's hacked? What if you know there are all sorts right. of like extra things that come in that aren't there with just not yeah, kind of conventional weapons. But so also is it the uh, idea is like we need to stop 
this now. Maybe this is a chance to sort of stop the progression of like more le- new lethal technology. I'm kind of middle of the road, honestly, mm. about all this surprising. I mean, I'm surprised at myself for being <laughs> sort of middle of the road about this because I have very strong feelings about the like, police use of force. It seems like, yeah. it, as Brandon said, maybe there's a bit of a fear of technology, right? It's almost seems like there's weird missing of the point or not, or, or rather not understanding exactly like how different or how bad this is when you compare it to all of the other military style, you know, police weapons mm. that are already at, at law enforcement's fingertips, right? And you're really great reporting on Mission Local. You, you, I love it when reporters do this too. You linked directly to the PDF the source document where all this stuff is coming from. And when you said in your article, the policy did end up passing unanimously. I was like, okay, well, what else is in that inventory? And it's quite the arsenal, right? Mm. Tanks, robots, an LRAD, which is a personal favorite of Brandon and mine. It's like a big sound cannon. It's not a favorite in terms of... Brandon just loves the thing. You (laughs) should hear him talking about it over beers. LRAD this and LRAD that. Posters. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's it's just a great, uh, you know, it's a great, like, party wagon, basically. It's the party weapon. But so the the point being, everybody saw this as this Mm. victory over the killer robots. But then nobody seems to be talking about all the other military grade stuff that everybody, including the furthest left on the board of supervisors, all signed off on. Yeah, I think one thing that it's worth kind of pointing out is that this policy was never meant to kind of take away all of those weapons. The idea was that it would lead to transparency and accountability so that everyone in each jurisdiction knew exactly what the police had. And in a way, that that's kind of one of the one of the things that was criticized about this policy was not what's in it, but what's been left out of it. And that there are there are hundreds of assault rifles that were not included in the policy because they were called by the police chief like standard issue. And so mm. it was like, oh, they, they were arguing, oh, you know, then they're, they're not military style, they're standard issue. So they don't they don't go in there. And that means that like in the annual report that will be required by this law, they won't need to in that report include how much they cost, how many of them they've got, um, how many people they use them against all that kind of stuff. So in a way, it's kind of good to see all of these scary things included in this policy because it means that there is this public oversight of them and the ability of the Board of Supervisors to either vote up or down the use policy. And that will happen every year. Like it will come back to them and let's go, it, does it still look okay? Mm-hmm. And I say, no, we need to tweak this, blah, 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 blah. And then, then they'll need to pass it again. Well, and that's the great irony of this existing as a story at all, is that the law AB 481 requires that transparency, whereas other places don't have those laws. And so these purchases are going on totally in the dark. So because of the visibility of this, that's why we're able to have this whole public conversation about it. And it makes it seem like San Francisco is somehow totally unreasonable because of the stockpiling of military weapons, but it's really just that they're showing their cards. And so exactly. you have, you know, Fox News like tisk tisking about it, in part because they just want any opportunity to own the list. Drag San Francisco, yeah. But also, yeah. yeah, the thing that's kind of buried in all this coverage is the fact that, hey, it's sort of a success for this law that we're able to have this public conversation and that the outcry is such that you could vote this thing down and that the 
powers that be heard and responded to it. Yeah, yeah. And like, it's a really important point that we did mention again in the in the first article about this, but we probably should have made more of because in the retellings, it wasn't really picked up, was that before this, there was not any law saying that they could use it for this, but there wasn't a law saying they couldn't either. Yeah. And that's like, that's, that's what happened in, you know, in Dallas in 2016, they didn't have a law on the book saying, yeah, you can blow people up with robots. They just did it because there wasn't a law prohibiting yeah. it. There was there was kind of like legal wrangling afterwards, but in the end it was all it was all considered basically fine. <laughs> and so in a way the stuff that was in there about robots that caused all of the controversy was more restrictive than what they had before, which was nothing. It's just mm -hmm. that it was explicit in saying now you can do this. And everyone realized like, oh my God, they're they're allowed to do this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's good too. That's showing that the law works and that, that this yeah. public discourse occurred and that change has happened. That is a success in terms of democracy and journalism and all those things working together. So, Will, you were, again, in the middle of this kind of hothouse of a story. I know that your story was quoted at least by the New York Post. It just refreshed your reporting and posted some of it. And I'm sure it showed up in other places too. But tell me, what was your experience of watching this thing go wide? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I mean, it was, it was when I started seeing articles appearing in like India and Thailand and Russia and back in the UK, which was quite nice. Quite enjoyed that, seeing it on BBC News. Um, <laughs> to be um, clear, did you break this story? I think, yeah, we got there first but we we reported it a week before the vote went through with the board of supervisors so people kind of weren't looking at it by then and some places decided to only cover it once it had passed the full board and so what did the national media get right what did they get wrong where were the obvious obfuscations or omissions or whatever yeah so i, I wasn't looking at all of them crazy closely. The two main things were the lack of clarity around the robots that SFPD has now and the fact that they are remote controlled and the fact that previously there had been no explicit approval or prohibition. I think those two things are super important for understanding the context of the story. And in some places they were, they were skipped over. They're not very easily understandable and tabloid accessible kind of points, I guess. And yeah, I, I feel like if, if we went back and did it again, I probably would have tried to have really emphasized those points in the original story a little bit more. I think that's a good way to put it. It's not what you said, it's tabloid accessible. Mm. What we saw here was this story that has a lot of nuance to it that is in ways boring in a good way, almost, you know, it was kind of this like procedural thing of transparency yeah. and changing of language of policies. And, and then there was public debate and then the board of supervisors decided to revisit it. And now they're taking another look at it. Now, that's not as fun as killer robots are taking over San Francisco, which is, you know, the shareable headline. So let's get into what it really is. And so the first thing we can revisit is the incident in Dallas where there was the shooter and they had this technology, they strapped a bomb to the robot, drove it into the parking garage. Crisis terminated, right? With all of this and with your reporting, Will, what do you think? Do you think that this was going too far? Where do you land on that? It's a, oh, it's a really good question. I think ultimately I would land against it uh, on the understanding that I imagine that if you were to say, 
that you can have these kind of remote controlled land-based drones equipped with bombs that police departments across the country could use i would probably say that on balance they're going to do more harm than good like i i expect that if you're going to be using them in a situation where there's an active shooter there are also going to be lots of other people around and it seems to me like the potential for things going wrong and collateral damage is higher than if you were using a conventional weapon but i do completely understand the other point of view which is you know if you've got a situation where it seems like this is the way that will keep officers out of the line of fire and you know neutralize a threat i can see why that would be persuasive to people but I, I, it's probably like a, a, a in a way a product of my culture right like i was brought up in in england where the the police aren't even armed you like with it, they don't have, they don't have guns and so the idea of having explosive robot drones it just seems to me like a couple of steps it's not a a friendly bobby yeah and so and i appreciate what you're saying about the slippery slope not being you know you could always legislate against stuff down the line as well well honestly i agree with you too i mean i'm I'm, i think i said this earlier like i'm surprised at how much i'm sort of batting this back and forth in my head and (laughs) one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this idea of the scary killer robots specifically is that it almost pulls the conversation into a place where it doesn't need to be so a good example of that is that everybody celebrated the robot decision without talking about the fact that there's still an arsenal of military style weapons at the police department no one talked about that that's a problem because the shiny object of the killer robot is what everybody latched onto shouldn't the question really be what are we doing to reform how law enforcement runs in America, not focus on like this, like recency bias of the new technology that's coming out. Yeah, that's definitely one way you could look at it. I think the other the other kind of perspective is the idea that and I'm going to try and stick away from the slippery slope. (laughs) (laughs) This technology is becoming more and more common and that there are more and more uses of it that are popping up like in Oakland. So they had a similar policy where they were saying, we want to be able to lethally use these robots. And eventually it was shot down. But I think next week, they're going to be talking about the idea of arming them with pepper spray. Mm. And that Mm. seems to me like, like it's part of this whole thing. Like we've been talking about lethal force this whole time, but there's also this idea of what would that robot be for? That's not to neutralize a shooter. That's, what is that crowd control? <laughs> yeah, know? no, it's like, a good point. What's happening? So I think there are kind of qualitative differences between using this technology and using the stuff that we've got now that are worth, you know, experts weighing in on and stuff like that. I think that's one thing that people were a bit concerned about in this vote as well was that, you know, there aren't many people who have expertise on armed robots, <laughs> and not many of them had weighed in before this decision was being made, and so I think. The decision to send stuff back to rules committee was basically again to kind of open it up and see what more people think about it because yeah. it's so it's so complicated and thorny as an issue. And you get far away from the idea of why are we doing this? Well, it's to maximize public health and safety. And you know, if the police are protected and educated and well equipped, and they have the right kind of intentions, and you know, and their goals in society are all you know for the good then they're doing their job of protecting the public interest and where that fails is where you have you know like you said civil disobedience becomes a real thorny thing because often that's where 
tear gas is used. That's where the riot shotguns and the beanbags, those are used against often peaceful protesters. Of course, we saw that in 2020 a lot. And so the concern that military-grade hardware or just police hardware in general is used against people who are exercising their constitutional rights, that's not a slippery slope. That is, I mean, I think that's the direction you want to take that. It's just the question of, are these bomb-carrying robots going to help police to be safer and therefore do their jobs better? Or as you're pointing out, if it's like, well, we can also deploy them in a line on a public street to keep crowds controlled, and then we don't have to put our police there, they can do something else. Absolutely, that stuff gets tricky. And can also, I think, be legislated, right? Like the LRAD, the acoustic device, the police had to say, no, we're not going to use the deterrent tones. So that seems like it's successful. Now, again, if they're just playing loud music to disperse people, maybe that's a different way of weaponizing it. Yeah, which is something we saw in Australia during these protests. Uh, When was that? We did a show on it, actually. Yeah, it was protests against lockdowns, I think. Yeah. And they and do you know about this? Well, they did like they 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 used an LRAD to blast like super annoying pop music. What song was it, Brandon? It was like definitely they were doing the the shark song, Baby Shark. Yeah. So they were doing it. So it was like they were just like blaring and using that. They were like weaponizing annoying songs. And I, I just really love this point that you're bringing up about the middle ground use of this type of technology is of more immediate concern. And it gets us back to this point about is the killer robot the problem we should be focusing on? Yeah, it was definitely a theme of people's comments that they didn't trust the the police would use these as rarely as they Because I mean, as I say, like they've had these for over a decade now already, and they've never used them for this. And, you know, we're still talking about the incident in Dallas in 2016 because it's like the only example of, of uh, this happening. So it is crazy rare. And then you compare that to all of the other stuff that happens in terms of police use of force every day. I can see why you would definitely say like blowing up kind of the coverage of this when there's all of this other stuff happening is odd. I guess it's just because it's so new and there's the, the worry that it would become less rare that it would become part of that bigger problem. And also that it's a thing you can see, right? You can say, Mm. well, a robot will cost this much money and we can control its behavior in this way or this way. What's harder to articulate is to think, well, if you relocate those costs into, you know, more training for police or into training crisis counselors or, you know, something like that, where essentially it could potentially do more good, but you're not necessarily thinking about that because, you know, we're not putting the cost of therapy or some of these other things that have been proposed as potential solutions to like police issues in a community. Those things aren't being put on the line item, so they're not being considered. Instead, again, it's like technology, it's a scary thing. Is it going to be a yes or no on that? And you know, for the police unions, they're incentivized to like try and get that stuff put out there. And if they don't, then they'll just go somewhere else. But you really have to sort of rethink the entire use of funding, which I know is what people talk about, because it comes down to like, you bring in like defund the police and, and that just that idea of like, what can a police department do? What should it be? What kind of role should it have? And how should technology supplement that? And how should we make sure that the technology is benefiting everybody and not just, you know, a more militarized 
more aggressive yeah. police force. But it gets us back to problems that we can solve right now. Board of Supervisors rethinking this whole thing based on a bunch of public opinion, public servants serving their constituents, going back, meeting again, making modifications based on what they heard from the people that they represent. Thumbs up democracy on that one. What do you think, Will, can be done, should be done? What are you hearing in the news about how people are thinking about how we could build better trust into police departments, etc., so that when these decisions are made public, people aren't immediately saying, oh, well, the police are corrupt. They're going to F mm. this one up. Well, I guess in a slightly ironic way, laws like AB 481 are a pretty good start in that it's that is showing increased accountability and transparency of local departments. And so they, they now need to have sign off from elected, you know, civilian oversight in order to be able to use various bits of equipment. I think that's probably a good thing. And it's just kind of ironic that its passage and its, its implementation in San Francisco has led to this big backlash when really it is about showing people what is being used and kind of putting putting limitations on what those uses are yeah as much as it's scary it is also a success story for transparency and yeah. you know that is something that certainly the national media sort of blew by because again the shiny object the bomb carrying shiny object is the thing that people <laughs> pay attention to rather than the larger conversation about how do we implement laws to yeah. make sure that these conversations are going on at all these levels. I mean, I'm there's not a lot of opportunities where the shiny object is a literal <laughs> shiny object. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. require a lot for the public imagination to <laughs> no. figure out what these things um, are. And it's also, it's, it is worth noting that the implementation of this law in San Francisco, it did have other things that would have been really good to have dug into. For instance, like we mentioned already the missing... 375 assault rifles from the policy. So I tried to kind of create a spreadsheet of everything that was in the policy so that you could kind of tabulate costs of everything. And the way that it's being reported out, it's, you know, some things the cost is done by the group, by the type of stuff. So it's like, here's the costs for all of this type of ammunition, for example. And then there are other places where the costs are tabulated by the individual model that they're doing and stuff like that and it makes it impossible to get an, an entire kind of clear view of everything that the police own and what they're spending on it which is kind of the point of the law <laughs> but it, it's super in the weeds and a lot trickier for people to care about i guess than the kind of more headline parts of this this policy well so for you at mission local then your job is to I'm sorry to say, well, you got to figure out how to sex that stuff up. How yeah, do you sex up the it. weeds? Working yeah. on it. <laughs> the fact that the law worked, the fact that you're reporting on the law worked and brought these issues to light, the fact that it created a conversation, all of that is something that needs to be drawn attention to, not only because it showed that the law worked, but because, and I think we can't stress this enough, it was local reporting yeah. that brought that to the fore. You guys got there before anybody did. And even though, you know, the mainstream media sort of fumbled the ball a little bit by missing some of the important points, still, again, the conversation went on. So, you know, there there are a number of successful things that have nothing to do with the police, but rather about how public stories are constructed and how the media and law and the public all work together that, you know, is, is worth mentioning and is what, you know, is a case study of 
how these things yeah. interact. I think the killer robot story is actually very successful in that respect. Well, Jarrett at Mission Local, thank you for coming on. Where in the world can we find you? I'm on Twitter, Will Jarrett Data, or you could take a look at the Mission Local website. I'm sure you'll find some bylines, recent bylines there. Yeah, please check them out and donate to Mission Local. They are a nonprofit. Please do. Give yes. them some money. Will needs needs money for those very expensive data visualizations. Yep. The robots aren't doing that yet. That's still human stuff. All right. Thank you so much. And this has been Journos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I'm Stephen Jackson. See you next time.